Hello, and welcome to the latest Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. My name is Sunny Radju, and I am a trainee associate editor at Frontline Gastroenterology. Today, I'm joined by the fantastic Dr. Jenny Epstein, who is a leading paediatric gastroenterologist and paediatric endoscopist based in West London. She is also co-author of the review article, Eosinophilic Oesophagitis, Recent Advances and Practical Management, available now in Frontline Gastroenterology. So, Dr. Epstein, eosinophilic oesophagitis is certainly a hot topic at the moment. Why do you think this is? Well, it's probably a combination of reasons. I think there's a genuine increase in incidence of eosinophilic oesophagitis alongside most other allergic diseases in the last two decades at least. But it's also an increase in awareness, an increase in endoscopy capacity. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, so I only see children, and certainly within pediatric gastroenterology, there's been a huge increase in the number of endoscopies being done and in the recognition of the condition. Also, in the last year, there's been the release of the first ever formulation of budesonide that's actually licensed to treat that condition. So I think it's this combination of reasons that's increasing awareness as well as genuine increase in incidence. Okay. So the paper you published in Frontline Gastroenterology titled Eosinophilic Oesophagitis, Recent Advances in Practical Management, was really useful, particularly discussion around treatment options. What inspired you to write the paper? Well, a number of things. I think that the practicalities of treating EOE can be quite different to the sort of rigid or specific guideline recommendations. And uh, Stephen Atwood and I really just wanted to outline more of a pragmatic approach that was useful for clinicians to join in the differing and similar management approaches between adult and pediatric practice. And at the same time, in the background, both Stephen Atwood and I are involved in the BSG guideline writing process for EOE, and we're in the process of writing the first ever UK guideline for adults and children in EOE in this country. So I think a combination of things, but mainly just trying to write something that was pragmatic and user-friendly and really directed at the clinician sitting in the the consultation. Yeah, I really thought it was. And it got me thinking a bit about biopsies as well and, and how often sometimes we don't always take them. In your opinions, what are your thoughts on EOE? Do you think we miss it quite a lot? It's difficult to say. There were more than one sort of large uh, study that came out some years ago when EOE was still quite new. And they looked back on large series of endoscopies that were done for upper GI symptoms and for reflux. And many of these authors, particularly in pediatric gastroenterology, were identifying you know, up to 30% of their previously diagnosed reflux as actually having above the threshold for diagnostic um, numbers of eosinophils. I think now it's probably less missed. It may be more frequently missed in adults than in children, because I think in adult practice, perhaps because endoscopies are done under sedation or perhaps because of the differential diagnoses people are looking for, it's much more common to not biopsy normal looking esophageal mucosa. And so perhaps within adult practice, it is being missed more often in pediatric practice for better or worse. We're routinely biopsying all different sites in the upper GI tracked even if it looks normal and so I think in pediatric practice it's probably missed much less so than it was done and uh, endoscopists and gastroenterologists are much more aware of the condition so 
I think maybe it's more frequently missed in adults, probably not so much in children. And of course, it's not just the identification of the number of eosinophils in the mucosa, but also it's a clinicopathological diagnosis and I have to correlate with the clinical symptoms. So I think, you know, just identifying eosinophils in an esophageal biopsy in isolation is not necessarily as useful as making that full clinicopathological diagnosis, which is a combination of clinical symptoms and esophageal eosinophilia above the diagnostic threshold. Okay, so just thinking about those symptoms then, what symptoms in particular are you thinking about? Because dysphagia obviously can be quite common. Um, what is it in particular that you look for? Yes, dysphagia is, I think, common in adult practice, and I'm the wrong person to talk about that with because I don't treat adults. But dysphagia really isn't a common symptom in children, not true dysphagia. And in my practice, if you have an older child with dysphagia, the chances of it being EOE is really extremely high, particularly if they're also atopic, having other allergies and atopies. So it may be that the question you're asking is perhaps a bit more directed for an adult gastroenterologist, but for me, in the older children, if that child has dysphagia, then the index of suspicion is extremely high. In younger children, as you know, presentation is much more non-specific, And that's one of the reasons why we biopsy all of the children who come through, even if their esophagus looks normal macroscopically. So symptoms, classical symptoms, I suppose you're looking at dysphagia, heartburn, abdominal pain. The younger you get in childhood, the less you really get that picture, the more you get nonspecific things like failure to thrive in the young ones, vomiting, uh, food aversion, feed refusal. If you like, all of gastroenterology really can present um, with EOE. Okay. Now, you mentioned biopsies. I imagine there's some readers uh, who know of people who don't always take the six biopsies that you mentioned. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on this and what you'd say to them. Yeah, well, it's been really clearly shown on more than one occasion that the sensitivity goes up step by step by step with the more biopsies you take. And if you take six biopsies, the sensitivity is something like 97 to 99%. And that goes down and down and down the fewer number of biopsies that you take. And it's purely numeric in terms of catching a patchy disease where the eosinophil count may be different in different areas of the esophagus. So I think if you're only, it depends. I mean, if you have a low index of suspicion, if you're trying to take esophageal biopsies, perhaps on a patient who's distressed, who's not under anesthetic, so perhaps I have that luxury, then I can understand that maybe you're not only taking two biopsies, but if you're really suspecting EOE, you absolutely must take the six biopsies. Okay. Now, in the paper, you mentioned you should be taking two from the lower, the mid, and the upper, or three from each half. Do you then need to put these in separate pots? Does it it change how they're reviewed histologically? I do put them in different pots. I think it is helpful, not so much how they're reviewed histologically, but if you know at which site the eosinophils are, it does help you with that difficult differentiation, which within pediatrics, we're often trying to make between gastroesophageal reflux and EOE. Of course, in EOE, you can get predominant eosinophilia in the distal esophagus, just like you can with reflux, but it's very helpful to know that the eosinophilia is greater in the proximal biopsies, more so than the distal, because that's a positive diagnostic feature for EOE. But I'm pretty sure that if you separate them into different pots, it does increase your pathology costs, certainly does in where I work. If you're sending six biopsies in one pot, it's cheaper than two biopsies in three pots. So I think that's going to be down to individual decision making. But for me, if money were no object in terms of the clinical information you get, separating the pots is useful. Right. 
Okay. Now, in the paper you've mentioned, there's no real blood tests that we can use at the moment. Are you aware of anything that's currently being developed or studied that might be of use in the future? Yes, I mean, there are a lot of things under study at the moment. There are a number of different ways of collecting uh, fluid or cells from the esophagus that doesn't involve a full endoscopy. There's something called a cytosponge technique where the patient swallows a pill that's sort of on a string and the pill releases this sponge into the distal esophagus and then it's pulled back and you can get in that way not only fluid but also some of the uh, cells of the esophageal mucosa and from that you can elute various different mediators which is useful. There are other things which measure not so much cells or fluid or biopsies, but the actual distensibility of the esophagus and the thickness of the esophageal wall. And those things are still within the realm of research, but there is commercially manufactured thing called the endoflip, which you might have heard of, which measures the distensibility of the esophagus. Unfortunately, this also needs an endoscopy to be done, but there's a really good correlation between the characteristics seen on the endoflip and the diagnosis of EOE. There's some gene expression techniques that are being looked at, and there's a 96-gene PCR test, which also needs endoscopy because I think you have to do it on a biopsy. But that's also got a really good correlation with EOE. The holy grail that everyone really wants is a non-invasive biomarker, a blood test or a salivary test or a stool test. So far, none of these things have yielded any clinical benefit. But at the moment, all of the things that are really exciting and in production do involve collecting local tissue or local fluid from the esophagus in the ways that I've just described. Okay. Now, you mentioned GARD earlier. As I'm sure you're aware, it can worsen some of the asthma symptoms that people have. Is there any association between EOE and the atopic symptoms in this sense? There probably are more associations than perhaps initially apparent. There's a well-known seasonal distribution to EOE diagnoses, EOE flares, and also to um, dilatations for strictures. And it may well be that that's a, an association with environmental allergens, like, for example, pollen or grass allergens, which are around at certain times of year. So those are more likely to coexist, and they may well be seasonal factors that affect that type of atopy and the disease activity of an individual's EOE. Um, and those kind of environmental factors, they may well be um, airborne factors or seasonal food availability, may well exacerbate both types of allergic processes. Mm-hmm. And speaking of those seasonal changes, do you notice any difference with different ethnicities or people in different countries? There's a consistent increase in EOE diagnoses and EOE disease activity in the spring and summer. And that's consistent across all temperate climates. EOE is more common in colder countries. And within those countries, there's a preponderance for Caucasian ethnicity. So whether or not there is some kind of a protective factor in non-Caucasian races, we don't know, but there seems to be two things going on, both a geographic or perhaps a climatic effect and also an underlying genetic effect, which may be to do with race. Certainly in tropical countries, there's a much lower recognition of EOE, and this is probably more so than just less endoscopies being done. There's probably a genuinely lower incidence of EOE in more tropical countries. Okay. And atopic diseases, as I'm sure you're aware, have a preponderance to boys before puberty. 
but this reverses afterwards. Do you see any sort of similar changes by age in EOE? I think probably not. Actually, in EOE across the whole age spectrum, there is about a three or four times greater preponderance of boys than girls. And that's consistent throughout childhood. Perhaps in very early childhood, babyhood or toddlerhood, that, that sex difference may be less so. But I think all the way from early childhood, all the way through to adulthood, that preponderance of boys is consistent. Okay. Now, you mentioned you're currently working on, on the first guidelines for this. So we just talk a little bit about treatment options. I understand that the first thing you should be thinking about is a dietary trial. How long would you give them this dietary therapy before you repeated the endoscopy? This is tricky because it depends on not only disease factors, but also logistics and also really to try to get that balance between how often are we going to subject these people to repeated endoscopies. In my practice, we say at least four to eight weeks for any dietary maneuver. In practice, it ends up usually being longer, partly because if there's a good symptomatic response to a diet, then it's quite likely that that child and family will want to continue rather than re-challenge, partly because we like to really limit the number of endoscopies that we put people through, um, and partly because in terms of sheer weight on services, particularly in the COVID um, year that we have this year with all the disruption to services, we're just not going to be doing endoscopies every four to eight weeks. And so in general, I think it's probably moving more to the three-month, the six-month mark, even longer, assuming that symptomatically the person is doing well on the diet. But I think really, if you're talking about the pathophysiology of the dietary change and how long does it take to cause a resolution in the eosinophilia? You're talking four to six to eight weeks. Okay, fine. Now, I understand milk is one of the most common food triggers. I just wonder what your thoughts are then on breastfeeding, both in terms of the potential risk factor and also in terms of removal as a dietary therapy. Yeah, I mean, EOE is rarely diagnosed in young infants that small who are still breastfeeding. People have looked at whether or not breastfeeding may actually be a protective factor in future for an individual not to develop EOE. And there is a bit of a signal there, I think, in epidemiological research. So I don't think we would ever be in a situation where we'd be asking somebody to stop breastfeeding as a treatment for EOE, partly because we're not usually diagnosing it in those young babies, and partly because we believe um, that breastfeeding is probably conferring some kind of protection. Okay. So you mentioned that other forms of treatment do exist and, and PPIs is one of them. Do they provide a symptomatic improvement or is there actually a histological change with PPIs? It's both. And in years gone by, people talked about PPI as somehow being in a separate category of treatment, that the resolution of uh, eosinophilia with a PPI had a special category that was different. That concept has been dropped now. And PPI is a valid treatment which does lead to symptomatic and histological resolution in a proportion of patients. It may well be that that proportion of patients is under 50% in most series, but there is a genuine treatment benefit from PPI in a subset of patients, both clinical and histologic. Okay. Is there any way you can predict some of those patients that you suspect will improve with PPIs? That's a tricky one. In general, I think most of us in practice are making some kind of a subjective, at least, judgment about severity. And if you have 
if I have a child that's newly diagnosed with EOE and they've got very significant dysphagia, or certainly if they have narrowing of the esophagus or, or stricture formation or failure to thrive or any signs which I'm worried about, I would not go with PPI as a first line treatment option. I would be much more likely to go with either a more radical dietary approach or budesonide topically. Right, okay. So thinking about some of those dietary therapies, in the paper you suggested, some of them are quite difficult to follow. And in fact, they can be worse than the disease. What do you suggest to these patients? Is it almost better to have the disease or is it worth pursuing the treatment options? I mean, I think it's wrong that the doctor makes that value judgment, but many of the patients are going to be weighing up that value. And I think our job is to spend time discussing in the clinic what the various different factors at play are. And one of the reasons why that discussion is so difficult is that none of us are able to give a tailored risk assessment as to which patient is gonna develop a stricture and which one isn't. We might say that overall a lifetime, the stricture risk is 10%, but that doesn't really help a person who's in the clinic deciding how aggressive they want to be with treatment, how much is it worth following a difficult diet, how much is it worth staying on a long-term steroid. And I think that has to be a discussion and that judgment as to whether the diet is worse than the disease has to be made by the patient. There are many patients who are in a completely valid way deciding that exclusion diets aren't for them. And if that's the case, they need to be supported to use other treatments. And I think our job really is not so much to say we impose a diet on you or we impose a drug treatment on you, but I think to really encourage the patient to understand in the clinic that we should not do nothing if you've got EOE, why we can't really ignore their diagnosis of EOE, but then they should be supported to adopt whichever treatment suits them better. One of the difficulties, particularly in childhood, is where the locus of decision-making actually lies. And for many children, particularly as they get into older childhood and in adolescence, they quite naturally are not very well placed to grasp long-term consequences. And if you talk to a child about something that will happen to them when they're 25 or God forbid 35 or 45, they really will not be able to see that at all. And many children don't really care when you're telling them about the future and the parents really do. And in that scenario, particularly for the adolescents, the parents are often desperate to impose a diet that that individual person is just not going to be able to follow. So I think if that's the case, the best thing we can do is to help that young person to understand what the risks are, to try to swim with them rather than against them, to find the best possible answer as to what treatment they can they can stick to in the longer term in order to keep their EOE in remission. Right, okay. And so when you're having these discussions, like I imagine they can be quite difficult. Is there anything you can try and do that makes it easier for them to understand or anything that improves some of their engaging with therapy? That's also quite a difficult question. In an ideal world, they will be having, every individual patient and their family will be having a proper multidisciplinary input into their care. They will have an expert dietitian who's going to help them to follow diets and to tailor diets into ones that are effective and, and feasible. They're gonna have access to a psychologist who in particular is able to do some liaison work with them in terms of looking at both the impact of the disease on their psychological and social and emotional health, but also 
looking at underlying personality factors or mood factors, it's well described that both children and adults who are low in mood, who are having a depression, are much less likely to adhere to their treatments. So I think the best thing we can do is to provide supportive services that doesn't just involve something paternalistic and the doctor is talking to the patient in the clinic, but there actually is a wider support network and a way to get in touch with perhaps the dietitian or with us outside clinic times if things go wrong. I think that in many ways, it partly depends on the attitude that the parent is taking because the parent has to strike the balance correctly as well between imposing their will on the child, um, but also allowing the child to have their freedom. And I think if all of those balances are correctly struck and correctly supported, that is that individual's best route to you know, long-term good uh, understanding and management of their condition. Okay. Dr. Epstein, this has been a really useful discussion and there's lots of points that I hopefully will take back into my practice, but if the listeners were to somehow only take one thing away from today, what would you want it to be? I would want it to be that EOE is a real disease, it's getting commoner, that it should be treated and that equally dietary treatment or medication treatments are acceptable and should be discussed carefully with every individual person. Perfect. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.